This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. RAF typhoons take on Russian bears while Fallon takes on Putin and does the Russian leader plan to invade the Baltics? No end date for the UK Ebola operation in Sierra Leone, but so far so very good. All the king's horses and all the king's men, how do you put them together again? And cafe society in Kabul, what the generals should have known. The Defence Secretary is warning that the Russian president may try to destabilise other former Soviet states. Michael Fallon thinks President Putin could use the same tactics in Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia as he has in Ukraine. And he's urging NATO to be ready for any Russian aggression. Well, BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. It's not gone down well with the Russians, this has it, this kind of statement. They are really, really poked off about this. The Deputy Foreign Minister, Alexander, Lukashevich said that Mr Fallon's words were beyond diplomatic ethics um, and they are, as you know, the Russians are experts at diplomatic ethics and said that the Kremlin is going to find a way to react um, and this is the way one would expect them to say this um, but let's have a, just carefully what, what actually um, Michael Fallon was saying he was saying that he wouldn't that, that Putin is something else this is not normal diplomatic ethics of what's going on in Europe at the moment and he wouldn't be at all surprised if uh, President Putin started to put pressure on the Baltic states, the three countries of the Baltic states and in particular, he, although he doesn't say this, this was what was behind from the briefings he was getting um, uh, Estonia would be a target and that the Russians had already moved up to about 30,000 troops quite close to the Estonian border now they're not going to invade but it's, it's a further pressure. Mm. In the meantime, he's looking back at Eastern Europe and he says the real next target for Mr Putin could be Moldova. Why, why would he be saying this, Christopher? Why would Mr Fallon be saying this? Is because he's had three or four briefings in the past 48 hours mm. which increasingly show that uh, Mr Putin has ambitions which they hadn't worked out before. Mr Putin is not looking for controlling the whole of Russia. That's the uh, uh, whole of Europe. That's the, that's the that's the latest thing. What he does know he can do is to have in, not necessarily his name, but he can have that bit of eastern, eastern Ukraine, which now even people in NATO, or certainly in the EU, think is almost inevitable. So do, do you think he wants to really invade the Baltics? No. I mean, from what I've heard so far, no, he doesn't want to ma uh, uh, invade the Baltics. So what you get out of this is the very old-fashioned style of, of European politics. You put pressure on NATO, on the EU, and these are public bodies in as much that it shows the weakness in them and they can't decide what to do about it. For example, at the moment they are producing more sanctions, right? And you're saying sanctions are working because the economies of, of Russia and its friends are going down. But yes? not changing policy. But they don't change yeah. policy. Mm -hmm. They're still there. And so he is saying that all the things that you're trying to do 
uh, we are just going to put step up more pressure, more pressure, more pressure, and it will start to show uh, your own electorates, and we've got two years of massive elections going on in Europe, your own electorate will start looking around at your leadership and say, where's this strong leadership that we were promised? It's not there. What do you make of the reports of, of Russia, for example, flying yet again a couple of planes, a couple of bears close to the Cornish coast? Yeah, they're close to the Cornish coast, but they're not actually in airspace, British airspace. And so what happens, you, 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 you send up a couple of aircraft just to make sure that they don't. Uh, what do I make of that? Well, it's where they were. Normally these things come through from the northeast and they come through from the Kola Peninsula and mm -hmm. the Kola Inlet, for example. Um, now they're making round trips. They're going down as far as the Bay of Bis Biscay, Portugal. Some are coming back on the Atlantic run where they used to come back through. through so uh, is it deliberate detour then? It's deliberate detour. It is showing that they can do it. Mm. I mean, for example, the other day there was a, a, a Russian vessel in the Channel and the Navy had to get a destroyer out there to, to escort it up. I mean, it wasn't going to do anything, just escort it up, make it aware. And two things that happen. One, it shows that the Navy's only got one ship to do it. <laughs> Second thing with the aircraft is that these guys are sort of poking fun of them to some extent and they're saying, this is your response time. If we were doing this for real, it's kind of quite finish. a good test of British defence capabilities, isn't it? The RAF love it. I mean, the RAF love it for two reasons. One, it shows you how good they are, and sometimes they get airborne, you know, within seconds, and that's it. And the second thing, of course, is that at a time where we're heading for defence cuts, maybe the RAF says. You need us, baby, you need us. Mm, yes, well, well, meanwhile, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko is calling for UN peacekeepers to be deployed to eastern Ukraine to enforce the ceasefire brokered by the leaders of France and Germany last week. Michael Bocherku is spokesman for the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, special monitoring mission to the Ukraine, and joins us now from Kiev via Skype. Good to speak to you today. Um, is the ceasefire holding... Well, um, good to be with you as well. What we're um, reporting is that um, there have been um, quite a few um, ceasefire infractions, um, <clears throat> most notably around the uh, city of Dabaltseve, also in Donetsk, um, and uh, about 20 kilometers east of the port city of Mariupol. We do still maintain that um, the ceasefire is largely holding, but there are those exceptions. And uh, as we spoke, just said just then, Petro Poroshenko says he wants UN peacekeepers. What's your position? What's the OSC's position on that? Well, um, you know, in our, our mandate, um, we're tasked also to work with others, cooperate with others, the United Nations, ICRC and others. So we will um, fully cooperate um, if this uh, uh, idea does, um, does become a reality. Um, but at the moment, for, you know, for us, it's business as usual. Um, we have more than 400 monitors in Ukraine at the moment, and about two-thirds of those are based um, in the conflict zone. Um, in addition to that, we also have the use of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, and also um, we're looking at employing new technology. It is a big area. It's uh, bigger than the size of Switzerland. However, of course, we feel we're, we're up to the task. What do you think is needed at the moment to try and stabilise and maintain a ceasefire? Well, that's, that's easy to answer. What is needed is uh, political will, goodwill, um, and common sense. Uh, you know, what the new Minsk agreement did is created a, a new platform, if you will, for the various sides to, you know, walk together towards peace. And uh, what they need to do is to learn how to take that walk together. However, we're very concerned, disappointed, I would say, 
at uh, at those numerous um, violations. You mentioned how many people you've got in the area. What are your rules of engagement? Well, of course, we're an unarmed civilian mission. Uh, we're here at the invitation of the Ukrainian government. So we're here to basically establish the facts to observe and to report daily. Um, in addition, what we're tasked to do is to facilitate dialogue and access. And what that means, for example, um, intangible uh, words uh, you know, on the ground is, for example, we're now, because of calm in some areas, able to access village that, villages that we haven't accessed for a long time because of the shelling. And what we're finding are some very worrisome um, humanitarian situations. Uh, you know, near Donetsk Airport, for example, people there told us they've been out without uh, water, and running water and electricity for months now. Um, in smaller villages, people living in shelters for long stretches of time and also without uh, power and water. Um, we were talking earlier in the programme about the, the, the new war of words, if you like, between the what the British Defence Secretary has been saying and, and the Russian response to that in terms of what Russia might do next. How difficult do those do those kind of conversations, those kind of spats, filter through to you guys on the ground? Well, we um, we again because of our mandate, uh, we're very we're very an operational mission. We don't get involved in the politics of it, and. Um, does you know, it affect you, though? Does it affect the way people cooperate with you when you have these things going on on the political well, I level? I think we have very good cooperation on a number of levels. Our participating states, including the United Kingdom, very generous donation, by the way, recently by the United Kingdom of 10 um, armoured vehicles to the mission. And also, um, we have very good cooperation at the highest levels of the Ukrainian government. And, of course, we have you know communications and contacts with the rebel groups as well because working in that conflict zone... It's uh, very important us for to have a dialogue with them as well, so that we're able to move about safely, so that we're able to, you know, facilitate dialogue and access. There's talk about whether or not there should be more military support of the Ukrainian forces. What kind of impact do you think that would have? I'm not in a position uh, to comment about that. Um, uh, you know what what the Ukrainian military requires. So. All right, Michael Bocherku, I'll let you get on with your work. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Still to come, are British troops winning in the fight against Ebola in West Africa? And what was it like to live in Kabul at the height of the war in Afghanistan? This is BFBS. Sit rep. Libya has asked the UN Security Council to lift an arms embargo so it can tackle Islamic State militants. Rival groups have been fighting for control of the country since 2011. Earlier this week, Egyptian forces bombed IS targets in Libya in response to video that appeared to show IS militants beheading 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians. Oliver Miles is a former British ambassador to Libya and he joins us now. Hello to you, Oliver Miles. Hello, good afternoon. Libya is lawless. It has two rival governments, which makes it fertile ground for IS militants, militants doesn't it? Yes, it's, uh, I, I think it's probably taking a slightly alarmist view. The, the, um, I think the Islamic militants, um, if you're talking about the people who identify themselves with the so-called Islamic State in, in Iraq and Syria, they're, they're a fairly limited element in the, um, in the balance. But the, the, the trouble is there are too many too many competing factions in Libya. You say, you say limited, but when they do the kind of things that they did, it gets a response from Egypt, which is bombing. Well, that's, how, that's what they wanted to do, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, I mean, the, the, there's a, 
there's reason behind their madness. Uh, I mean, this is a terrible crime they committed, but quite apart from the crime, the way it's presented, and we've seen this in Iraq and Syria, of course, as well, uh, with a very slick uh, video uh, which is planned to shock everybody and to make everybody take instant decisions which they might regret later, um, I'm afraid that's, that's uh, in danger of carrying the day, and, and it's uh, governments have to... to, to think hard before they respond to, in the way that the, the terrorists want them to respond. It, it all seems a long way from what David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy envisioned, envisioned at the time in 2011 as a former British ambassador to Libya, probably extremely frustrating for someone like you. Yes, it is frustrating. I mean, no, nobody, of course, can foresee the future, uh, and um, nobody, nobody could at that time. I mean, the, ne the nearest I would claim to have done in foreseeing what's gone wrong <clears throat> is that I remember saying very clearly at the time of the um, of, of our decision to to uh, support the revolution in 2011 that one of the reasons against that was that nobody could tell what the, the long-term political consequences of that would be. And, and I think that's something one always has to try and think about. But I'm not saying that I, I foresaw what would happen. Of course not. Christopher Lee. Um, Oliver, it strikes me that with quite a lot of uh, requests and demands and opinions that say, look, somebody ought to get involved and help out in this, apart from the Egyptians and what the Egyptians did, you can't normally intervene unless there is an established, even if it's threatened, form of government, can you? No, uh, there is a, a government in Libya. There, <laughs> there are two governments in Libya. There, there are two claimants to be government, and one of them has the support of the international community and is recognised by Britain and other powers as being being the government. But you're quite right. They don't have control, and I'm sure that people who are considering this um, request for, for uh, lifting the embargo on arms will be saying to themselves, well, who's going to control where those weapons go when they get into Libya. As a matter of fact, Libya is already awash with arms because Gaddafi was an, an, a compulsive arms buyer and he left piles of arms all over the place, many of them, of course, completely useless, but no doubt dangerous all the same. Um, so it's, uh, I, I would be very surprised, actually, if, if the international community were to lift the embargo. I think it's, a, it's the, wrong, the wrong thing to do. What they should be doing, uh, and they are doing, I think, and perhaps they can do it more vigorously, is supporting the political move, which is led by the UN representative in, in Libya, Bernardino Leon, who has actually been very successful in the last um, two or three weeks in getting more and more Libyan uh, factions, parties to talk about a, a, a political compromise solution. Indeed, I, I wonder, I haven't seen any evidence for this, but I wonder whether that was why the um, extremists decided this was the moment to, um, to try to rattle everybody by this dreadful crime. Where's this going? Uh, assuming that the first stage would be containment, where's it going to end up? Well, the hope is still that, that there will be agreement between the various factions in Libya, which would lead to, um, first of all, restoration of oil production and uh, uh, therefore ability to, to spend money on a political solution, uh, then persuading the armed factions in Libya, the so-called militias, uh, progressively to give up their weapons. And that can only be done if something is offered in return. And what has to be offered is a place, a respectable, a, res uh, a dignified place in a real Libyan state with perhaps a job, a place to live, maybe the opportunity to get married, to settle down. In other words, give these young men who've got weapons and who feel that the state owes them something, 
because they were the people who overthrew Gaddafi, uh, give them something in return. When you look at the situation in Libya now and you compare it to when Gaddafi was alive and in charge, which situation do you think was better for the people of Libya and for the outside world? I'm not sure one can really sensibly answer that question. The two are totally different. I mean, the, the Gaddafi regime was awful. Uh, people were hanged if they stepped out of line. Um, he had a record of, of interfering um, outside his own borders in all sorts of dangerous ways, less so in recent years. He'd calmed down. He'd, been, he'd, been, he'd seen the, uh, the dangers of the past, the, 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 the course he'd been following early, in earlier years, but there was no guarantee that he wouldn't revert to, the, to his more dangerous customs. Now you have a di- completely different situation where there is insecurity, fighting, uh, and uh, loss of life as a result of that. Don't let's exaggerate. When we talk about Syria and, and, and Iraq, we're, we're used to talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of, of, of victims. In Libya, you're talking about the high hundreds or the very low thousands. So it's uh, not anything like the situation that exists in Syria or Iraq. All right. Oliver Miles, thank you very much for your time today. The Defence Secretary says the fight against Ebola in Sierra Leone is being won, partly thanks to British troops and the Royal Fleet auxiliary ship Argus. Michael Fallon was talking during a visit to the 750 UK personnel deployed there since last autumn. Mr Fallon said Argus will be leaving soon, but her capabilities will remain. The um, helicopter lift will now be provided in future not by the Merlins, but by civilian helicopters and the additional medical facilities available uh, in our, inside Argos can be provided now onshore as well. And he met British military medics treating Ebola patients at the Kerrytown Medical Centre. This is the front line here, and what's come over very strongly today is that the local communities now get this. They understand the dangers, and there is a lot of effort now going into forensic tracing of contacts where there are suspected patients, and it's much more methodical now, the work in getting this disease under control. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to our reporter, Charlotte Cross, who's in Sierra Leone. So in Moyamba itself, there's a small team of um, Army and RAF and um, DFID working together, living out of a small fob, um, and then they, uh, again, they are helping to coordinate the NGOs here working out in the district, and they have had some success. Only four households are now in quarantine in Moyamba. That's about 30 people, um, and there are no actual cases of Ebola being treated here, although there is a treatment centre that's been built by the Royal Engineers there aren't actually any confirmed cases in there at the moment. So that's good news. But the worry, of course, is that there are cases out there that are not being reported for cultural reasons. People want to bury their own dead because they don't want them buried in body bags. Situations like that mean that some cases could remain hidden. So it does seem, Charlotte, the operation has some way to go. Any idea how long it's going to last and when it might end? Well, no, and Michael Fallon on his visit the other day did say that there is no time frame for this operation, so he has no end date in sight. I think he has an end date for RFA Argus because she's been deployed now for almost six months in total, so she might well be going home soon. But he has no end point for the the troops on the ground here. They're doing a really important job, and as I said, they started with one case. So if there's even one case that's missed, Um, then this could all spiral out of control very quickly again. So I think there's a real determination to keep people here until this job is done and until the transmission rate reaches zero. That was Charlotte Cross reporting from Sierra Leone. Christopher, till the job is done.
Um, the job is done until um, um, until the medics say, I think we've cleared it up or we've made it an acceptable sort mm. of um, a, a disease. The important thing about this, I believe, is that the, the British operation, the military operation, and also with the Department of, uh, of, of Foreign Affairs as well, was a wiring diagram success and has been a wiring diagram success. It's the way that you bring all the organisations together and you have one clear command which understands the limitations and, frankly, who to speak to. Uh, and, for example, if you, when we were in Afghanistan for the first time, and it was a joint operation with different countries, the commander in Afghanistan used to have 13 telephones on his, on his desk because oh. if he wanted to speak to Operation B or C or D, and that's he had to do it. And then eventually they realised this and they brought it all down under one telephone. Mm. That's exactly that... That experience is partly made the Sierra Leone operation from the United Kingdom uh, a huge success, along with the RFA being there, because it's a, you know, it's a floating hospital. Has the army changed its mind about reservists? General Sir Nicholas Carter has been talking about how the army should work in a speech at Chatham House, and he said the army reserve would be used differently to how it was planned in Army 2020. We are not going to use it regularly and routinely, as perhaps was suggested a couple of years ago. Rather, it is there in the event of a national emergency. Now, that means it's much more straightforward, I think, for a, an individual to be a member of the Army Reserve. So, Christopher, Chatham House, that's a sort of esteemed uh, centre of uh, thinking on defence and international affairs, isn't it? Um, you were in the audience, weren't you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Why do you um, say it like that? I, I, I'm always very disappointed uh, sometimes at places like Chatham House when you think, um, uh, you, you get somebody stands up and says, tell me, General or Admiral or uh, Air Vice Marshal or whatever, there are only six six-inch guns left in the Navy. Now, why is that? Mm. You, know, and you, you miss Did you the get big questions stories. as blunt as that? You get bl questions as stupid as that. I, I usually get people, uh, when I see these things, it's usually people trying to ask the most most difficult to understand question that you need a degree uh, to answer listen, in the first place. I watch these guys week in, week out. They stand in front of the mirror at home <laughs> uh, when they're shaving <laughs> and they rehearse the questions, they're rubbish. Um, no, uh, let, let's put this in some context. Uh, uh, Nick Carter, Apologies General, General to Carter. House there. Uh, yeah, love you, love you, love you. Especially not your fees, though. Um, he was the guy that designed the new army, and now he's the chief of the general staff, and it's his job is to put into operation what he designed. And this is quite unique. So listen to what he says, because here's the fella that was setting up now on reservists, for example. Still, he believes in a population of 60 million, you can get 30,000 reservists. A lot of people say you can't, mm. but he's putting them into a training role. The biggest, he has two big problems, actually, once you get over the numbers. One is that the employers are now saying we're not so sure. At one time, they used to say, yes, I've got somebody in the TA, send him off, uh, drive up and down the M11 uh, over the weekend, and he comes back a better guy. But the biggest problem, interestingly, they can't get officers. They can't get people who are willing to give the time and the commitment to be part of the officer corps. Mm. But the main thrust of what Nick Carter was saying is that his priority is to restore the readiness of the army. Um, and you've got to start thinking how you're going to fix it, the agility of the army to respond to all these things, uh, all, all, all sort of situations you might get into in this, in this period now that we're going into of, of a different type of warfare. And one of the models they're using are the French.
the French operation in Mali, they admired it very much. They got in there quickly. They did things that were quite imaginative. They did things thinking outside the box. And mm. he said, we've got to do far more about that. But he still says still that the, the big division, okay. the division has still got to be the lowest formation for war fighting, but it's just got to be better at it. Well, just a minute ago, we heard the head of the army saying one of the weaknesses of the Iraq and Afghanistan operations was that we may have known the military side of what we were facing, but we did not understand the people, their cultures, the day-to-day -day life. Well, Heidi Kingstone is a journalist who was living in Kabul during the war in Afghanistan and has written a memoir about that time. Good to see you, uh, Heidi. You've written exactly what the general needed to know, haven't you? Well, um, if I only he'd known you then... I think there might have been some other advisors <laughs> who had a bit more cultural background. But I think uh, certainly living there, you could see um, how the divide was much greater than we had anticipated. And I think that we just didn't really understand how very conservative it was. Mm -hmm. But then there was, in uh, the capital itself... There was this sort of group of young people who did want change, I mean, who loved listening to Bollywood movies and using the internet, but it's still fundamentally quite a conservative society. So what do you think was the popular image of the, the coalition forces had before they went to Afghanistan, and how different do you think it was? I, I think when we, went, when we went in, it was, I think, quite positive. But by the time we left, I, I, think, it, I think everything was... Um, much more difficult and much less positive. I mean, I think it's hard. I think the culture is just so, so much more conservative than we, than I think we had anticipated. What did you try to bring out in the book exactly? Then? Ah, the book is um, is a completely different look because it's looking at the expat community and this, um, this capital that sort of um, arose out of nowhere. Uh, you know, uh, the, the city had been sort of bombed and. You know, there was nothing there. And then by the time I arrived in 2007, there were restaurants, there were bars, there were parties, there were um, shops. Mm. It, it was quite, you know, extraordinary. And it was, I think, a unique time as well. And you looked also at women, didn't you? Absolutely. Afghan women and how they were living. But yeah. again, I suppose your idea of what was good for women and their rights wasn't necess didn't necessarily marry up with what they perceived to be what they wanted. Yes, and also um, how difficult it is to affect change. And so what it, did you experience exactly, for example? Um, well, what I experienced was, I, I mean, there were, you know, a lot of the women were, fa you know, fantastic and they're strong, but there are a lot of very, you know, there are huge cultural restrictions, um, you know, not being able to leave the home, uh, what they wear, those kind of things. But then I worked with, uh, you know, or dealt with some women who were, you know, they're smart, they're strong, they're tough, um, but they're also part of that culture. They're not separate. You talked about the difficulty of affecting change. Yeah. Does that mean perhaps it's not quite right to try and affect it in the way that we might see right to affect change in a Western kind of way of seeing things? Yeah. I, I mean, I think we went in with the mission that we wanted to defeat the Taliban and punish, uh, defeat Al-Qaeda and punish the Taliban. Um, and then it turned into something that was remodeling Afghanistan in um, sort of our own image, which was, I think, in retrospect, something that was never going to happen. Christopher? Um, it also strikes me that when um, the general, for example, we drew children, Nick Carter, was saying that one of the weaknesses 
You see, you go to war and you know about the capabilities, military capabilities. You don't really know about the culture enough. You don't know about the people uh, enough. Um, you've got to keep, really, this what you're doing or what you did. You've got to keep it going, haven't you? Because this is evolving now as a consequence of that war. And so what the general learned, say, from your book, if he'd read it, let's say, two years ago, is not what he needs to know for the next war. Yeah, and I, I think that there are people who are truly Afghan experts. I mean, I was somebody who was a, you know, more of an observer who understand the culture and that sort of tribal conflicts and, of course, you know, the corruption that I think is the cancer at, you know, the base of, of the society, uh, which doesn't look like it's getting any better. And just how resistant people are, especially to change about for women. Um, so do, you, do you think you'll be going back, Heidi? I would love to go back, but... Mm. Uh, and do you know people who are updating you on how things have changed since you've since you left, since you've written the book? Yeah, because I think that this, the security t situation is much more tense. I think a lot of foreigners have left. I mean, there's so many, you know, our eyes no longer on Afghanistan. There's, you know, what's happening in, as you were saying, Ukraine, what's happening in Syria, the drawdown uh, money leaving, uh, you know, uh, development money. So I think things have absolutely changed, and I think there's not that kind of same exciting life. As someone who lived there and saw it pretty much as, as a journalist and civilian, how, how do you feel now about the the military campaign in Afghanistan? How do you think we'll be talking about Afghanistan in, say, five, ten years' time? Do you have an idea, a feeling for that? Well, I, I think sadly it's um, it's quite negative. I think that you know, the idea was to change Afghanistan, and it was, I think it was an ill-fated campaign. That would not have been what I would have said at the beginning, but I think in retrospect. Send a copy of your book to General Carter. Okay. <laughs> Heidi Kingston, author of Dispatches from the Kabul Cafe, thank you for joining us. Uh, Christopher, what should we look up, out for next week? Uh, a fantasy idea. Uh, Mr Putin does things by surprise and catches people by surprise. Mm. Look out for something quite spectacular uh, to come from the Putin camp. OK, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. News. News. Sport. Sport. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.